We we'll open God's word this morning to Psalm 130. Sorry, 131. Psalm 131 is one of the shortest psalms of the Bible, and yet the lesson that it is going to teach us is a very long lesson to learn. Psalm 100, 131. Here is God's word for us this morning. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you join me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we need your spirit to help us learn the lesson of the psalm. Father, we thank you that in this word you tell us how we should hope in you. Father, we pray that you would help me proclaim this word and help us hear it so that our hearts may cling to you in hope. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Psalm 131 is known for this image of a, of a baby, of a, of a weaned child. Uh, it's a powerful image, and we will look at how this image functions in the psalm. But the main point of the psalm is captured in the clear command it encourages us to pursue in verse 3, I wonder if you picked up that command. In verse 3, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. It's interesting that this psalm picks up the same theme as we looked at last week in the Psalm 130, which was also a psalm that encouraged us to hope in the Lord. If Psalm 130... Last week, the psalm we looked at last week, encouraged us to look at the God who is worth hoping in. This psalm has a different twist to it. It's not only encouraging us to hope in the Lord, but actually this psalm is actually emphasizing how we should hope in the Lord. What is the, what is the posture that we should have as we hope in the Lord. And what goes before verse 3, in verses 1 and 2, describes for us how we should approach this call to hope in the Lord. And the simple and the short answer that, that this psalm is, is teaching us to, to do is not only to hope in the Lord, but how to hope in the Lord. And the, the answer is, Hope in the Lord with a humble heart. Hope in the Lord with a humble heart. This is a posture for hoping in the Lord. This is a posture that the psalm is teaching us to have as we are called to hope in the Lord. The psalm challenges us to learn that hope in the Lord always comes with humility and never apart from it. The psalm challenges to learn that hoping in the Lord always comes with humility and never apart from it. One of the big litmus tests of whether or not our hearts, <coughs> excuse me, of whether or not our hearts are hoping in the Lord is whether we take the path of humility. No prideful heart hopes in the Lord. No heart, prideful heart hopes in the Lord. Now, we may pretend to do so. A prideful heart can go through certain motions that looks like the Lord is involved in people's lives, in, in our hearts, in our lives. But a prideful heart cannot and will not actually genuinely hope in the Lord. So this morning, we want to see how, if we want to grow in 
hoping in the Lord, we must be reminded of taking the path of humility. So how do we hope in the Lord with humility? How do we hope in the Lord with a humble heart? And this psalm will, will teach us two ways to do that. First one, first way is by resisting pride. By resisting pride. And the second way will be by calming and quieting our soul. By calming and quieting our soul. And if, if you're looking at this as a psalm, you will see that first, the first point, by resisting pride, will be found in verse 1. And the second way, by calming and quieting our soul, is found in verse 2. This is a lesson that the psalm is teaching us. Hope in the Lord with a humble heart by resisting pride and calming and quieting our soul. Let's jump into it and learn how this psalm is teaching us to hope in the Lord. Resist pride. Look at verse 1. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. This psalm is describing the deliberate choice that the, the psalmist is taking in not following the path of pride. And he describes the path of pride in, in three forms in this passage, three, three facets of it. The heart, the eyes, and the activities of life. The heart the eyes, and the activities of life. And notice how in each of these forms of pride, the psalmist has determined to fight and resist those prideful paths. First, the seed of pride is in the heart. That's why the, the first place the psalmist resists pride is battling this pride in the heart. He says, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. In the Old Testament, the image of the heart, the, the category of the heart, refers to the core of our inner being. It's the seat of our thinking, it's the seat of our affections, and it's the seat of our will. Thinking, affections, and will, all are parts comprising the heart. When the Old Testament speaks of the heart, it speaks about these facets. So for the psalmist to say, my heart is not lifted up, it's as if he's saying, my thinking is not lifted up. My affections are not exaggerated. My willing for myself, things uh, that I want for me are not too high. My heart is not high. Then the second facet of, of fighting, resisting pride is, is the eyes. The psalmist goes on to say, my eyes are not raised too high. The eyes are a way of, of showing what we are looking at, what our attention is gazed at. What we are looking after is not too high. It's a way of saying for the psalmist, I have, I'm, I'm resisting exaggerated hopes beyond what God wills for me. Now, does this mean that we should not have big goals in our lives? Does this mean that we should have uh, no high aspirations in life? Uh, imagine, I can just think through the, those, those of you who are starting college and are looking forward to a new season of life. When you're getting trained, hopefully you'll get skills and abilities that prepare you for a good job, for an ideal job? Does this mean that, that we should not have high aspirations in life or high goals in life? No, that is not what this means. This psalm is not saying that people should not aim to achieve great things in life. God gives us abilities. God gives us uh, skills. God gives us opportunities, and we should steward those skills. We should steward those opportunities. We should steward those abilities. 
to train, to get equipped, and to use what God has given us for His glory and to do great things for God's glory. So we should look at what God gives us as stewards and use them well, not squander them. So it is not wrong to desire to grow in, in our abilities or even in our influence if those aspirations are coming out of a heart that wants to glorify God and steward well what God has given us. But it is possible that our attention could always be elevated beyond our abilities, beyond what God gives us, always wanting something better. And we compare ourselves with one another, with our neighbors, with those around us, and we always are looking at what others around us have more than we do, more abilities, uh, more opportunities, more things, and our hearts and our attention, our eyes are always looking at the neighbor's stuff, the grass being greener on the other side, always appears to be so. So when your eyes are always looking higher than what, what God has given you, aspiring for more than what God has called you, then it is actually possible that those higher looks are actually coming from a heart of pride. The third path of resisting pride is not only taking place in the heart and in our attention, in our eyes, but it's taking place in our activities. The psalmist says at the end of verse 1, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. This speaks of the ambitions to do things that are beyond our abilities and beyond our calling in life. Again, clarification, this does not mean that humility should never means that we should never attempt great things for God. This does not mean that those who aspire for great things for God, to do great things with their lives, that somehow those who aspire for great things are necessarily and always proud. After all, there is a hint in this psalm, actually in the title of the psalm, uh, that this psalm is written about David. Surely David accomplished great things for God. And he did great things for God. Remember his battle with Goliath, battling single-handedly through God's power at, at the impulse of God's leading him and by trusting fully that only the Lord could accomplish that battle and win. David won one of the greatest battles against Goliath. He was the greatest king, humanly speaking, that Israel had as a nation. So this psalm is not speaking about humility as if we should not aspire to do great things with our lives for God. But notice an important clue in this psalm. The psalmist says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. If God calls you to do great things for Him, then stewardship of that calling is to do great things for Him, even if it feels like it's too great for you to do, humanly speaking, on your own strength. But sometimes we want to do great things with our lives apart from God, apart from the calling of God, apart from trusting in God, apart from keeping God center and front stage in our lives. And we get used to the idea of just aspiring great things and God takes a back seat if he takes a seat at all in our lives. And this psalm is speaking about that tendency of the heart to want to do great things with our lives and God being far from those plans. That is pride. The pride of wanting to do great things that God never assigned for us, never called us to do. 
Some people run after great undertakings without God calling them to do so. Sometimes we even want to do great things for God, and God has not called us to do them. You say, what are you talking about? Occasionally I hear young men who aspire to the office of pastor because they love the spotlight that they see certain popular pastors to have and think, wow, that's great. I would love to be, to be serving the Lord in that wonderful way. And it's not so much that they actually have the call of God on being shepherds. They just have that instinct of the heart for the spotlight that they see certain pastors having. And they have how the spotlight of the pastoral ministry is not worth uh, the, the true calling, the true labor of what shepherds are called to do. Sometimes we get enamored with a spotlight of doing great things for God, and we feel like, wow, that'd be great for me to do. In reality, our hearts are clinging for the spotlight, not necessarily for that calling. You see the difference? We can do and feel drawn to do great things for God, even though God has not called us to do those things, but we just, we, our hearts are drawn to the spotlight of those great things. Oh, friends, it is not wrong to desire to do great things for God if this is what the Lord is calling us to do. But ask God to help you discern if you're coveting to do more things for God because of just the impression and the, the reputation and the, and the spotlight that that brings, or it it's truly is the, the calling that God has for you. Not being content with a lot God has given us and always wanting the ministry or the, uh, the, uh, the doings of other people could be a sign of pride in our hearts. Yes, in the case of David, God called him to be a king. And he is confessing here that even in the office, in the role of a king, actually what he was working on, he was to, to make sure that his heart is not going beyond and above what God called him to do. Lord willing, in the month of September, we will start a new sermon series um, on the book of 2 Samuel. And as we will go through that series of, of narratives from the life of David, we will, uh, we will find out very clearly that the lesson of this psalm that David speaks of in, about his own heart is not a lesson that he has lived out consistently all the time, sadly. And we'll see more of that later. The psalmist here is telling us that his entire being at this stage in his life, when he's writing the psalm, that his heart, his, from his heart to his eyes to his occupation in life were all subject to the restraint of humility. Humble people do great things through God's help, but it happens only as we walk humbly with the Lord. An example of a passage that combines humility with doing great things for God is another psalm, Psalm 18. And I bring that to you here just to, to point out that we want to make sure we don't think of humility as not doing great things for the Lord. Psalm 18, verses 27 through 30, is an example of a psalm that combines humility with doing great things for the Lord. Uh, just listen to these words. You don't have to turn there. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The way of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. So it's not wrong to do great things for God. If that is what the Lord has called you to do. But if you find yourself always in the pursuit of greater things always looking for the next thing up, you should at least, at least consider whether those pursuits are coming of a heart that is actually thinking too highly 
of eyes that are raised too high and of ambitions that are always preoccupied just with doing greater things all the time. There are two opposite ways in which a heart that is haughty manifests. For some, a haughty heart leads them to get into all sorts of rash decisions and reckless paths in life. And some people struggle to say or when to say no and where to draw boundaries in their lives. It's possible that that struggle is coming out of a heart who actually thinks highly of itself. I love how one of the reformers, John Calvin, said it beautifully, where this loftiness of spirit is checked, the consequences would be that all men would study moderation of conduct. But for others, the, the prideful heart manifests not so much in the harsh, I mean, in the rash and quick decisions and always, always doing something great or, or pursuing doing something great. For others, a proud heart manifests through the quiet planning that looks godly, looks like sober thinking, but it's a quiet planning that always relies on ourselves and our resources and our abilities rather than relying on the Lord. The point is, you can be proud in either being too quick to act always on great things or too quiet and too reserved because you have the, your reliance always on yourself and you're just not sure yet you're ready for that to unleash. Guarding our hearts against not pursuing things that are too great for us can be applied not only to doing things in life, pursuing big life goals or pursuing daily life choices. Guarding our hearts against pursuing things that are too great for us also applies to our expectation to know everything. We always want to know things. We always want to be in the know and have a clear and solid explanation for everything that's going on in our lives. Let me take you to an example of this in the book of Job. You know the book of Job. You know how the story goes. At the end of the book, Job finally learned that his insistence on knowing why God allowed his suffering and his accusation of God that there is injustice with God, Job comes to realize this and he makes this confession at the end of the book in chapter 42, verse 3. He says, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. For Job, the things that preoccupied him that were too wonderful for him were the fact that he did not have an answer to his suffering. And when our hearts are preoccupied with that, in exaggerated ways. It's not wrong to ask God the why question. It's not wrong for us to, to struggle to understand why the suffering that, or why things are going around us in, in, in broken ways. It's not wrong to, to struggle through that. But when we insist on having the answer to those questions and we cannot move forward with God because we don't have those answers, it is possible that our hearts are caught up in wanting things that are just too, too great for us to understand. And that's Job's story. Job comes to realize and confess that he has, his heart has been wrapped up in this pursuit of things that were too wonderful for him. So ask yourself, are you the kind of person who always needs to have an answer to everything, always needs to know everything, always needs to have an explanation for everything? And do you hold God to that expectation? Friends, sometimes our pride shows up in our relentless pursuit of wanting to know why God allowed things to happen to us that seem unfair and harsh. I want to, I want to ask you to encourage you to, to examine your own heart and see the various ways in which your heart and my heart can be lifted up. Ways in which our eyes can be raised too high, always looking above others, always wanting what others have. And ask yourself if you are not preoccupied with things that are too great 
and too marvelous for you in ways that are beyond what God has called you to wrestle with. This lesson is teaching us not to set our hearts, our eyes, or life activities and ambitions beyond what God has allotted to us. I mentioned to you how this psalm is written of David. There are many times in David's life when he could look at the words of the psalm and and this would be true of his heart. And yet, there are times when the lessons he wrote about in this psalm, he did not follow through. There are times when David's heart was lifted up and his eyes were raised up looking over the fence at his neighbor's wife and wanting her, wanting what did not belong to him. He rushed into acting foolishly in his pride, thinking that he can have what God did not give him. And the sin of his pride led him to a host of other sins. Friends, this means that each of us must be vigilant with our lives and with our hearts, with our inner beings, Just because we might be able to say this about us now does not mean that this is going to be the case with us a month from now. This is a lesson for all of us to learn. I love how Calvin put it beautifully, to be contented with a lot which God has marked for us, to consider what he calls us to do and not to aim at fashioning our own lot, to be moderate in our desires, to avoid entering upon rash undertakings. This is what verse 1 is calling us. This is what verse 1 is teaching us about how to hope in the Lord with a humble heart by resisting pride. Let me ask you, can you say this about yourself? Can you say these lines of verse 1 about yourself? Can you say, O Lord... My heart is not lifted up. O Lord, my eyes are not raised too high. O Lord, I do not occupy myself with things that are too great or too marvelous for me. Can you say that to the Lord? Can you say that to another fellow being? By the way, this would be a wonderful exercise, a wonderful discussion topic for you to have with a trusted spiritual friend. Ask him to see and give you some feedback if these three lines of verse 1 could apply to you. Spouses, talk to each other. Uh, Don't talk over it at lunch. You might ruin your lunch. But talk after lunch. Talk and ask each other uh, open, candid questions. Hey, do you... How do you think I'm doing in these three, three lines of verse 1? You shouldn't feel, feel like my heart is high, lifted up. That my eyes, am I looking down on you? Am I speaking with an air of superiority? Am I always looking for the next thing up and not being content with the lot God has given me? Ask others to speak truth into your heart, into your life. Have the courage to ask others to give you that feedback. Because the way to hope in the Lord, the posture that the psalm is teaching us of we should hope in the Lord is with a humbled heart that intentionally resists pride. David at this moment is in a stage of life when he can say, this is true of me. Can this be true of you today? And if it's not, what must you do so that these truths would become true of you, so that you could, in a, with a clean conscience, say, I think to the best of my knowledge, I'm seeking to resist the path of pride in my heart, to resist the path of pride in my eyes, to resist the path of pride in what I occupy myself with. That's the first half of how to resist, of how to, to pursue a humbled uh, heart by resisting pride. But the second path, the second facet of this, is by pursuing a calm and quiet spirit. By calming and quieting your soul. This is verse 2. 
The psalm says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. This verse is a strong contrast to the path that this psalmist could have taken in verse 1, but he has resisted. Instead of taking that path of, of pride, it's not only that he says, here's what I'm not doing. In verse 2, he says, here's what, I, here's what I am doing. And the opposite of lifting your, your eyes, of, of raising your eyes, of, of, of being overly ambitious, the, other, the opposite of that is the path that the soul, your inner being, pursues calmness and quietness. This is the opposite of the fretful and anxious pursuits of goals that we can never attain. Taking the path of calming and quieting our souls needs to be explained because the psalmist makes it very clear. Uh, this, is, this is a path that he's intentionally pursuing of calming and quieting his soul. Now, there are times and circumstances in our lives that we cannot control and those circumstances come with tumultuous troubles, not only externally, but also internally in our hearts. Uh, this is the hard work of, of tending to our souls, of monitoring how our souls are doing. There are times when we cannot control the troubled soul. Times of deep distress, times of deep difficulties, times of prolonged suffering. And I would hate for anyone here to feel like if you're not having a calm and quiet soul, that somehow you are outside of the will of God. There are times of deep suffering when Christians go through troubled hearts. Just think, for example, of the turmoil Jesus felt in Gethsemane when he was about to, to begin the, the journey of suffering, the journey of, of the crucifixion. He, know, he knew what was coming. And in Gethsemane, Jesus confessed to his father and to the disciples that his heart is troubled deeply to the point of death. It is not ungodly to have troubled souls when we are suffering. And yet in the midst of, of various challenges and circumstances, the Lord is able, He cares for our troubled souls, and He's able to sustain us, to minister to us. He's able to soothe the troubles that we feel so that we may persevere through the, through the hardship, through the difficulties. This psalm is not talking about the calmness and quietness that we should have in times of deep distress. That is not what the psalm is talking about. The calmness and quietness that this psalm is talking about is a calmness and quietness that always goes with humility. We can be missing out on calmness and quietness of soul because of our prideful cravings being unmet. Sometimes our lack of calmness and quietness of soul is not because of deep, deep distress. It's because of simply discontentment with a lot that God has given us. So pursuing calmness and quietness of our souls is the other side of pursuing humility. The path of pursuing a calm and quiet soul is then illustrated by this beautiful picture of a baby that has been weaned off of breastfeeding. The emphasis of this image is the word weaned. It's repeated twice. Uh, this word is repeated twice because it's, it's what the psalmist is hoping to illustrate, what it means for our souls to be calm and quieted. What does it mean to, to, have, to be like a weaned child? I love how one Bible teacher put it beautifully. The weaned child is a child which no longer frets for what it used to find indispensable. The weaned child is a child which no longer frets for what it used to find indispensable. A weaned child can stay with his mother without wanting to breastfeed and being agitated if he doesn't. 
The child's biological instincts have come under control and have grown to the point where the baby can now be calm and quiet with his mother, not always wanting to be breastfed. Always. This is an image that the psalmist finds very relevant to describe the way our soul should be with the Lord. The way our soul should be like a weaned, weaned like a weaned child. Experiencing, and I quote here the words of Derek Kidner, the freedom from fretting, from the nagging of self-seeking. Well, friends, this is the calmness that the psalm is teaching us. To recognize that things that we once thought were absolute necessities for us, indispensable, that we are learning to open up our grip and not feel like those things are absolute necessities right away. It's a lesson that, saw, that Paul learned and taught us in Philippians 4 when he said, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the lesson that the psalm is trying to communicate in Psalm 131. I have calmed and quieted my soul. To receive what God has allotted to us, whether plenty or lack whether much or little, and at the same time, regardless of what it is, to be content. Friends, this is hard to do. This is, hard, this is a hard lesson to live, to let go of the things we once thought of as indispensable. What are the things that you tend to fret about very quickly? What are the things in your life that bring that quick rush of anxiety? Take some time to evaluate what your soul feels like needing right away. Is your soul weaned off like the psalmist speaks of? Are you pursuing the path of calming and quieting your soul? How are we to do that? Well, friends, when, when you meet it with a trusted friend, ask him or her to tell you how they see your life responding to the various challenges of life. And ask them to speak into your heart, into your life, whether they see this pursuit of calmness and quietness of soul, or they see the lack of it. Have the courage to, to look at your soul and prayerfully, with God's Word, with the help of God's Spirit, and with, with that feedback, with accountability from trusted friends, to speak and see how is your soul pursuing, how is your soul doing? Oh, friends, the posture of hoping in the Lord is a posture that seeks to calm and quiet our souls before the Lord. This is a great place to be. This is a great pursuit to have. But notice that this psalmist says that he was involved in this work. This is not just something that just falls on his soul automatically. It's not just something that happens because circumstances change. He says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. Well, friends, it's an active responsibility in our part. And we must learn to calm and quiet our souls as we put our hope in the Lord. Sometimes that means submitting ourselves to God's providence of circumstances which are hard and difficult for us to bear or to understand. Even when life circumstances are difficult, and when they're different than what we expect, when they're more painful or hard than what we can bear, submitting ourselves to the Lord and hoping in Him, knowing that He is with us, can bring an experience of rest to our souls, even though on the outside there's a big storm. Jeremiah Burroughs was one of the theological 
brains or architects of the Westminster Confession, one of the Puritans who was deeply involved in drafting the Westminster Confession. He preached a series of sermons on contentment. And after his death, his sermons were collected and published. And uh, those sermons, published sermons, are now under a title called The Rare Jewel of of Christian Contentment. If you can plow through old English Puritan language, um, you will be deeply blessed in, in working through understanding how to pursue this calmness and quietness of heart, of soul. But Burroughs defines Christian contentment, Jeremiah Burroughs defines Christian contentment in this way. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Let me read that again. Christian contentment is a sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Friends, how are you doing in calming and quieting your soul? And what are you doing to pursue that in your walk with God? Now, if if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, it is impossible to experience this calmness and quietness of soul that God alone is able to bring to us outside of a personal relationship with Christ. It is only God through His Son Jesus that actually is able to calm and quiet our souls, first and foremost, from hearing of the wrath of God against our unrighteousness. It is God alone who is able to quiet our souls and calm our souls in front of the justice of God, before which we stand guilty and condemned unless we turn to Christ and put our hope in Him to have our sins forgiven because of His blood that was shed for us because of his death that, was, that, was, that happened uh, as a means of, of averting the wrath of God against sinners. It is only because of Christ and his resurrection who overcame death and overcame our, our guilt and paid in full for our sins that we can stand freely forgiven before the mighty judgment seat of God. It's that quietness and calmness of soul that happens as we believe the doctrine of being justified, being declared righteous by faith alone in Christ alone. So if if you're here this morning and you're hearing this talk about about living humbly and living, uh, resisting pride and being humble and, and quiet and pursuing a quiet spirit, friends, this is not just pop psychology. This is the walk that happens only for those who have been made right with God. So if you are not yet right with God, the first encouragement I want to give you to pursue this path of calming and quieting your soul before God is to actually trust in Christ alone. He alone can quiet your conscience as your conscience is awakened to to the realization that our sins deserve the wrath of God. Turn to the Lord. Call on Him to save you. And if you'd like to know more about what that means, we would love to talk with you after the service. But Jesus came as He came to to die for our sins, to, to pay the penalty that our sins deserve. As Jesus went to the cross, He was concerned for what was going on in the hearts of His disciples. As He was approaching His suffering, He told his disciples these words, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Jesus cares about the troubled soul. And he wants to speak a word into our souls. And he spoke that word to the disciples. He did not want them to be troubled. And he said, Believe in God and believe also in me. This is the starting of the path of calmness and quietness of soul to look to God and to look to Jesus. 
Jesus cares when our hearts are troubled, when we lack the calmness and quietness of soul. This is not the way it was meant to be. He went to the cross so that he would cause our hearts to finally find true and lasting calmness and quietness in him. Later, Jesus said to his disciples, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Friends, God has given us plenty of reasons why our souls can find calmness and quietness. Just think of Jesus when he was on the boat in the storm. And the disciples were all, all fretting up, anxious because they were perishing, afraid of perishing. And Jesus, what was he doing? He was sleeping in the boat. This is the God who is able to speak into our hearts, to quiet our hearts, to calm our hearts. But it's only as we look to him in hope. The calmness and quietness of our hearts comes only through his son, Jesus Christ, as we put our hope in him. Our hope in Him, even in difficult circumstances. So let's evaluate what are the reasons that cause our souls to lack calmness and quietness. Sometimes it could be the resentment against those who have injured us. It could be the anger against those who have hurt us. If we can see that God has allowed those hurts to come our way, and that even those experiences of brokenness are coming into our lives through the filter of God's providence that somehow God has a wise plan even through those difficulties, it will be easier to let our souls experience calmness and quietness. I'll tell you about me. One of the hard times for me, one of the hard ways it's hard for me to calm my heart and quiet my heart is when others say, hurtful or nasty things about me. It's possible. It has happened. It happens. It will happen. When people assume wrong motives, and my mind just gets wrapped up to think, to try to, to go to trial, to court in my mind. Not, not real, not, not out there. In my mind, I'm, I'm, playing, the, I'm playing the judge. I'm playing the, the lawyer. I'm playing the everything so that I can see how I'm not what they think or say of me. And it's hard when other people hurt you, whether intentionally or unintentionally, to calm your heart against being hurt by the words of others. Or perhaps there are things that they're just are hard because they are different than what you expected, and it's hard to get your mind away from thinking about those things. It's hard to calm your mind about those things. But it's remembering that God allows things in our lives and all the things he allows, good or bad, easy or difficult, fun or hard, God allows all that through the filter of his providence. And what can help my heart, and I hope it can help your heart, to calm your soul, to be quiet before the Lord in the midst of, of difficulties, is to remember that it is God's providence who filters all that. And sometimes my heart lacks calmness and quietness because I'm not able to do what I hoped to do. It's my high ambitions, my high hopes, my eyes being raised too high, my heart being lifted too much, my ambitions being too exaggerated. And when those things don't ha happen the way I want them to happen, my heart my calmness, my quietness, all dispels. So this psalm is teaching us that as we are hoping in the Lord, we must do so. That hoping in the Lord always happens through a humbled heart that on one side resists pride and on the other cultivates this calmness and quietness of soul. Spurgeon said beautifully, one of the shortest psalms to read, the psalm, but one of the longest to learn. Hoping the Lord with humble hearts, by resisting pride 
and calming and quieting our souls. In the book of Jeremiah, there's a, there's a, a moment at the end of the book where Jeremiah's uh, scribe, who was actually writing the book as Jeremiah was dictating, his name is Barak. Barak was a scribe that wrote uh, the, the prophecy of Jer- the book of Jeremiah. At one point, Barak's heart is described as restless. And the, and, and the word of the Lord comes through Jeremiah to speak to, to Barak's lack of calmness and quietness of soul. And it says this in Jeremiah 45.3, For the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning, and I find no rest. And God's response to Barak in verse 5 is, And do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not, for behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord. Barak's heart lacked calmness and quietness of heart because he was seeking great things for himself. And God said, don't. Seek them not. I am about to bring destruction upon all the earth. Why seek great things for yourself? Friends, if you're here this morning and you came in with hopes to accomplish and conquer the world, and do great things in this life. But you have not yet made yourself right with God. You're not ready yet to meet the God who one day will destroy all this creation that has been under the curse of sin and will bring about a new heaven and a new earth. If you're not ready to meet this God who is going to do that, if you're not in a right relationship with Him, it doesn't matter what goals and ambitions you have in life. Make yourself right with God, first and foremost. And learn from this lesson that the psalm is giving us to put your hope in the Lord now and forevermore. Do so with a humbled heart by resisting pride and calming and quieting our souls before him. Let's pray. Father, you are a big God. You have in your control, you have allotted what our lives should experience. Father, help us to trust you. Help us to trust your providence. Help us to to quiet our hearts and souls before you, knowing that you are in charge of all things. Help us to give us the courage and the skill to examine our own hearts, to know when our hearts are high and lifted up, that we may repent, that we may turn away from pride, to resist it. And instead to cultivate humility of heart. Father, help our hearts to be gazed on Jesus. Help our our souls to put our trust and confidence in him and him alone. Because it is only through him and through what he accomplished for us. That we can have hope of pursuing calm heart. That trusts in you at all times. Help us, Father, in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.